Well, Merry Christmas. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors, and uh, we have intentionally tried to set aside this season as a time when we can have hope, because the, re- the reality is for many of us, the world seems very, very dark at times. It seems very, very bleak, and so we often need to see a reflection of Jesus in order to give us hope so that we don't get weary and lose hope, because that's what Scripture says can happen. A couple of nights ago, Laurel and I were actually outside, just enjoying the fact that the snow was falling up. Uh, I mean, we we got blasted in the north part of the county. I'm not sure what happened in Bellingham, but you guys, I mean, kind of, you were behind the curve when it came to the snow, when it came to the snow arc. But we were outside watching, and we began to notice something that we realized we missed when when we moved from Manitoba and Saskatchewan, where Laurel and I came from out here to Washington. One of the things you miss in the wintertime is the reflection factor. The reflection factor happens when any light reflects off of newly fallen snow. And we're outside, and it feels like it's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon because the light of the town is literally reflecting off of every single surface. And it just brings a warmth. And I kept thinking to myself that the reflection of light off of newly fallen snow is so reflected in this season because what happens during this season is the reflection of the light of the world goes off of those who have been washed as white as snow. And we begin to experience that and wrap ourselves in that. But the reality is sometimes we don't see much of a reflection. And it can actually be challenging to try and find it this time of year. And sometimes you just need to hear a little hope. Sometimes you need to to understand that that God is still doing so much in our world today. Because let's face it, we spend a lot of time hearing what's wrong with the world. Sometimes it's just nice to hear what's right with the world. The other day I was sitting... Well, actually, it was Black Friday, early in the morning. I was with my family, and I just deviated on my own to go and do some shopping because I'm all about a good deal, and I think that's cool. Um, Thank you, Jesus. Anyway, um, and and I go to Black Friday not just necessarily to buy things. I go to collect sermon illustrations because people that go to Black Friday are nuts. That's just the bottom line. And I can get usually enough stories to last almost an entire year, but I was sitting outside of a store waiting for Braden and Laurel to come back in the direction where I was, and... And I was approached by a family who walked up very tentatively to me. And I was surprised by their story. Because the lady looked at me first. She was the one that summoned enough courage. And she goes, this is going to sound really, really weird. But about a year ago, did you give us a gift card on Black Friday? And I thought to myself, I didn't recognize them at first. But I have an arrangement with certain families here at Christ the King. Sometimes during the Christmas season, they will give me gift cards and they'll say, we just want you to wander around and throughout the day, you know when God will have you give one away. He'll tap you on the shoulder and that'll be the family and you're just supposed to give it to them. The only agreement that we have is whenever I give one of their gift cards away, the only thing I'm allowed to say is this is from Jesus. I have the best job in the world. It's just fantastic. So I'm sitting outside of the store, the family comes and they ask the question, is there any chance that maybe you were here about a year ago and gave us a gift card? Because I didn't remember them, but I do have that pattern of activity, I said, it it could have been. And the husband began to describe where they had been in the last couple of years. And he talked about how the last year they had come, even though they had absolutely no money to participate in Christmas, they just basically showed up because they thought it might be something lighter to do on that particular day. And he told me how God had used that little gift card to shine some light into their very dark circumstance. 
He described how a loss of a job and, and, and medical problems and all these different things had happened. And then they just showed up in the mall and some stranger walked up. And the only thing he said was, this card is from Jesus. Now, that was not all that hopeful to me. What happened next is what brought hope into my heart. Because he reached into his pocket and he said, we were kind of hoping you might be here. And he pulled out two gift cards and said, we'd like to give these to you to give to whoever needs them because of all of the hope that happened to us a year ago and we just want to pay it forward. <laughs> okay, there's some hope for you. And sometimes you just need to hear that because the darkness of life can sometimes overwhelm you until a light gets turned on. Some of you needed to hear that story today. Some of you need to hear the story of a guy named Bruce Wilson. Bruce is one of those guys that just faithfully serves behind the scenes here at Christ the King. Bruce is going to retire. He's going to take a little break, break. But Bruce has faithfully served people at Christ the King in a ministry that we call Financial Peace University. Bruce has done 14 sessions of what we call FPU, which means he's personally counseled families and advocated for financial ministries at Christ the King all the way since 2009. And Pastor Ryan Irvin, who oversees that ministry, he just shared some of the things that Bruce has done over the past seven or so years. And, and, and this just, this staggered me. Because Ryan wrote, he goes, under Bruce's watch, over $1 million worth of non-mortgage debt has been retired by families who've gone through Financial Peace University. A million dollars. And then it goes on and says, and just about that much has also put in, been put into savings by exactly the same people. That pencils out to a $16,000 change of position for every single person that Bruce facilitated going through FPU. I mean, that to me is absolutely miraculous that that's the kind of investment that Bruce wanted me. And I'll tell you what, the darkness of debt it can sometimes overwhelm you until somebody turns on a light. Last week, I got to meet with Justin and Leland. Justin and Leland are brand new pastors in our area. And we gathered together to talk. And I love these two young men because they are absolutely obsessed with sharing the light of Jesus with people who know him. And even though it's unfortunate to say, I think we could all agree that sometimes the darkness of church competition can overwhelm you until somebody turns a light on. For the record, I love the fact that there are two new young pastors in this community doing everything they can to make Jesus famous in our community. And we never, ever, ever see another church's competition here. We always see them as part of the same family and the same team, which means this. When somebody gets baptized at New Hope, we win. We all win together. And our job is to actually be that kind of a family. Sometimes it can be a little dark out here, but it's not dark when someone turns the light on. I just saw the light of Jesus in the last couple of minutes. I came straight to church this morning from the hospital where a sweet lady named Laura Ross just a few hours ago took her last breath and graduated. I will never forget Laura walking down this aisle in Easter of 2010. She came all the way from New York to this part of the country. She had no idea she was coming across the country to meet Jesus face to face. 
And she walked this aisle. I will never forget when I baptized Laura. Laura scrapped with cancer five times. And she did not lose this morning. She won. But I saw the light of Jesus in a nurse who was absolutely devastated because of all of the love that Laura gave to her over the last couple of weeks. And I watched her lovingly and caringly look after Laura even after she was gone. I watched her become the hands and the feet of Jesus. She's not here at church this morning because she's working. But I see her here every Sunday morning at 9.30. She usually sits right about there. But today, God had a different mission. You know, sometimes the darkness of death can overwhelm you unless you see a light get turned on. Well, this morning, I want to sh- share this little platform. About eight or nine months ago, a mom from Christ the King sent me a video of her, uh, at that time, 15-year-old son. His name's Simon. Simon is a nationally award-winning public speaker at 15 years of age. And I heard a small portion of of a speech that he gave, and I know this will shock all of you, but when he was done, I cried. I cried all the way through it from beginning to end. (laughs) It's a stark and difficult topic that he's going to come and share with us this morning, but it's also a message of light and hope. The reason it's so dark is because it's set against the backdrop of World War II, the rise of the Nazis, the darkness of war, the horror of the Holocaust. But when I heard Simon share his small little piece, I thought that's the kind of hope we have to hold on to. We have to hold on to the kind of hope that God's grace and forgiveness can cover all of us. No matter what atrocity we may have been a part of. And I do want to remind you before he came, the one thing we all share in common today is that we are guilty. Our sin is what nailed Jesus to a cross. So we can't claim the moral high road against anybody. But the hope comes in the fact that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as Simon, would you come, please? It's raining over Nuremberg, Germany on October 1st, 1946. There is complete silence as the verdicts are read. Joachim von Ribbentrop, German foreign minister, Guilty. Wilhelm Keitel, Chancellor of the Gestapo. Guilty. Hermann Goring, Chief Architect of the Holocaust. Guilty. Another name is read. Guilty. Another. Guilty. These three men, along with six others, were found guilty of war crimes and genocide against over six million Jews, sentenced to death by hanging. And as those verdicts were announced, the war-torn world looked on with applause, for justice had prevailed. And so now, when you and I think of these Nazis, we remember them as the terrible and ruthless men that they were. 
Humanity was outraged at what had occurred in the concentration camps of Germany and Poland. Unspeakable atrocities visited upon an entire race of people, young and old, for no reason but ethnicity. Hatred was the raw emotion these men elicited. They were the face, the picture of evil. Evil beyond redemption. Or were they? Was there somewhere, somehow deep down, a little bit of humanity that could possess these men? Well, one man, Henry F. Gericke, thought so. An unknown, overweight, unimposing pastor from a small town in the Midwest United States. And I want all of you to know the story of Henry F. Gericke. Because you see, a year before the Nuremberg verdicts were provided, Gericke served as the chief chaplain to the Nazis during the Nuremberg trials. He was a minister to monsters, and history doesn't celebrate his actions. In fact, for all but 12 months, he lived an unremarkable life. But during those 12 months, he defied the hatred of the world to show there is no limit to God's redemptive love. And this story begins in Gordonsville, Illinois, on August 4th of 1893, where little Henry F. Gericke was born. Now, there's nothing especially interesting I can tell you about his early life. He was mediocre in school. He enjoyed playing baseball. He attended church on Sundays. After learning German and attending St. John's Military Academy, where he met his wife, he had three children. He helped the poor, the widowed, the destitute, and the sick as a pastor. It was all so normal. But that normality changed as World War II was drawing to a bloody close. Gericke had been serving overseas, helping wounded soldiers with the Allied forces, when he was requested by the International Military Tribunal to serve as the minister to the Nazis during the Nuremberg trials. Gericke accepted this position, and in November of 1945, he packed his bags and moved to the palace at Nuremberg. And so thus began his ministry to monsters. Now, Gericke knew he had a difficult path ahead of him. Somehow, his job was to penetrate these hearts of stone. Now, when he wanted to speak to most of these men, they, they told him they would rather prepare their mundane defenses and didn't want to hear about his religion. But from Gericke's perspective, the task was also difficult. He once remarked in a journal that I had plenty of excuses for bitterness towards them. He said, I had been at the Dachau concentration camp where my hand touching a wall had been smeared with the human blood seeping through. He said, I had been on the front lines for 15 months helping the wounded and the dying, and my son had been ripped apart before my eyes in the fighting. He concluded by saying, I had no reason to love them. And so ultimately, Gericke, believing that he had no reason to love these monsters, packed his bags and planned to move back home, missing his family. But when his Nazi flock heard of this, they immediately sent a letter to his American housewife petitioning her to make him stay. The letter, in part read, our dear chaplain Gericke is necessary to us, not only as a minister, 
but also because of the thoroughly good man that he is. We have simply come to love him, the letter said. It was now clear that whether he wanted it or not, Gerke had earned their trust. And with that trust, some began to listen. Slowly, over long periods of time, he began to make progress. But Henry Gerke understood, and those Nazi war criminals knew, that his job was not to spare them from the world's wrath. His job was to spare them from the wrath that would surely follow. And so on October 1st, 1946, the war tribunal issued its verdicts. Nine of Gerke's flock were sentenced to death by the rope. And so two weeks later, at 1 p.m., Joachim von Ribbentrop was summoned. Now, only a short while ago, this man would have been ordering from his throne of power the extinction of helpless Jewish children. A man who specialized in the annihilation of an entire race of people. And so he was sentenced to walk the 13 steps to the gallows. And so he did. He walked as an impassive press representative looked on. He walked as soldiers mocked him. And finally, at the last step, he was asked for his last words, to which this sinner responded, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. He then turned to Gerike and said, I'll see you again. The noose was tied around his neck, the black hood pulled around his face, and to the tune of thunderous applause from the world, he left this earth. And all Henry Gierke could do was stand by and watch it happen as the next prisoner was retrieved. Wilhelm Keitel, the director of the Nazi Gestapo. Gerke said that on his knees and under deep emotional stress, Keitel received the body and the blood of our Savior. Keitel himself said, May God, my Savior, be with me always. I shall need him so much. Now I could tell all of you about the transformation of many other men, except for one in particular, Hermann Goring. Historians credit Hermann Goring with creating the final, complete, and ultimate solution. The genocide of the Jewish people. When he and Gerke discussed the divinity of Jesus, Goring yelled to Gerke hotly that this Jesus you speak of to me is just another smart Jew. And so shortly before his scheduled execution, Hermann Goring, two cell blocks away from his younger brother, committed suicide in his cell. Now it's hard. Many times it's impossible for us to even begin to comprehend why events like the Holocaust happen. Why people like Hermann Goring or von Ribbentrop exist. But what Henry Gerke realized is that behind every sinner, whether that sinner is a Hermann Goring or a Simon Sefcik, a heart exists. 
And that heart can be hardened and corrupted and deceived. But that heart can also change. And so with the entire trial and mission over, Henry Gericke packed his bags and returned home, where he continued his pastoral ministries to a small congregation in Illinois until his death in 1961. And so there, just as fast as it began, his historical footprint was finished. There were no great historical mentions, no rewards. In fact, besides those 12 months, most people would have never remembered or cared who Henry F. Gericke ever was. But after his death, his son found a thick file of letters hidden in a secret compartment in his father's desk. They were postmarked from all over the United States. Most of them, however, were written by American pastors. They called my father everything, his son said. He was called Jew hater. He was called Nazi lover. They said he should have been hung at Nuremberg with the rest of them. All of it was written in the most hateful language imaginable. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the designers of the Holocaust treated Henry Gericke in many ways with more love and respect than American pastors that preached God's name from the pulpit. Not because he accepted their beliefs, not because he condoned their actions, but because to these men he gave what was needed most, a savior. A savior so great he could look beyond their worst deeds. A savior so great he could forgive them of their darkest actions and instead say to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they've done. To the designers of the Holocaust, this man introduced the designer of redemption. Through God, he loved the unlovely, served the undeserving, and preached forgiveness to those believed to be unforgivable, transcending their actions and transforming their hearts. But why have I told all of you this story? For I know that none of us have committed the sins of Hermann Goring. None of us has done or seen the things that Wilhelm Keitel has. But this I know to be true. Our hearts can be just as easily hardened. And so unless our grand confession is the same in substance as the one prayed by Wilhelm Keitel or von Ribbentrop, our eternity will be no better off than the one left by Hermann Goring. And so what Henry Gericke helped to prove is that through God, even a swastika can be transformed by a cross. And so the world gave to these men what they deserved, their death. But God, through a humble man, gave to these men what they never could have imagined, life. It brings me back to the words we just heard. How deep the Father's love for us.
how vast beyond all measures that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. I have hope in the future of a church that has that kind of a voice and that kind of heart. I know this seems heavy, but out of it comes unbelievable hope. For those of you who've traveled with me to Israel, you remember the afternoon that we spent together at the Holocaust Museum. It's the kind of thing you never forget. In one of the memorials that was representative of all of the children who died during the Holocaust, you walk into a room and it appears like there are millions of candles around you. What you are quick to understand is that it's actually a single candle in the middle of the room, reflected millions of times by tiny little mirrors that are placed all over that spectacle. As I stood in that memorial, I thought to myself, the only thing that brings me hope is the light of Jesus reflected over and over and over and over again. You see, there's tension. Every time I hear Simon's presentation, there's a tension inside of me because I want to argue with him. I want to argue in my own heart, and I want to defend the fact that I am not a monster. We like to think of ourselves as good people. And we're offended when our Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. It bothers us because we're good people. We're not in that category. They're different. And yet, we're forced to realize that Jesus brought light to everyone, all people, for all time, in all of history, and that there is no atrocity that is too big that can't be covered by the blood of Jesus. And that's hard for us to swallow and hard for us to contemplate. But it's the very context of Isaiah chapter 9, which is where we've spent all of our time and will continue to spend all the way through Christmas Eve. 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah said these words, people walking in darkness, that would describe all of us. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The light of hope is actually turned on. He says, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It's why Jesus called himself the morning star. A morning star shows up at the darkest part of the night, right before the dawn, in the coldest hours, in the most devastating, despairing hours of the night. That's when the morning star shows up and begins to reflect off of newly fallen snow. And that's what brings us hope in a time that seems so unbelievably dark and devastating. We love the fact that a light has come on. And as a New Testament believer, we've got to hold on to this. All of this is present active tense. The light is on. It's on. The question is, will we reflect it? Will we be that mirror that allows people to actually want to enter into the hope of Christmas 
And our response is supposed to be in chapter 9, in verses 3 and 4, because this is where the hope of Christmas actually shows up. And next week, we're going to get to the big hope, because we're going to get to all of the names, for his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We're going to celebrate all of that. But before we get there, God actually says that we can have a celebration beforehand, even in the face of the darkness that Simon described. The Bible says, you have enlarged the nation and increase their joy. They rejoice before you as people at the harvest. Can that actually describe your Christmas celebration? That someone would look at you and say, why in the world is that person so stupid joyful during this time of year? Could someone look at you and say, why in the world do you act the way that you do? Why are you so filled with peace during this time? I mean, don't you have any idea what's really going on in the world? It's the people of God that say, I know exactly what's going on in the world. But there's a savior. There's a king. There's hope. And I don't need to be weighed down because my Bible says the government will be on his shoulders. And if he's carrying that weight, I don't need to carry any of that. I only need to carry hope in my heart. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. What was the day of Midian's defeat? If you remember your Old Testament, it was a day when an insignificant little band of Israeli warriors, led by a self-confessed coward by the name of Gideon, beat an army of opposition for one reason, because the light of the world was on their side. They pressed into the darkness, even though the odds were stacked against them, and they allowed the light of God to shine through them, and because of that, they were victorious. I love Gideon. He's one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture, because God shows up and says to him, oh, mighty warrior, and his response is, are you talking to me? And yet God shows up in your life today, right now, and looks at you and says, oh, mighty warrior. And we're like, who, us? Like, yes, absolutely you. And here's what I need you to do. I need you to take the message and the mission of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. I need you to become the light of the world. And I need you to reflect him in a world that seems so filled with darkness. Because this one thing we know, in this much darkness, a little bit of light goes an awfully long way. It just shines. The same God that commissioned Gideon is telling us during this Christmas season, don't hide, don't cower from the darkness, but charge it with passion and wild abandon. Charge it with a chocolate bar in your hand and go make a difference. Because that recipient, that recipient needs their eternity changed just as much as you do. They need their atrocities covered just as much as you do. At the beginning of the message, I talked about my friend Laura. Laura came to Easter that weekend in 2010 because her brother Bobby invited her. Said, come on, sis, I know you're a tough New Yorker, but you need to come to church. You need to come and find some hope. And she came, and we shared Jesus with her. I will never forget the day we baptized Laura. What a celebration that was. She still has the towel that says baptized Christ again church. 
What an unbelievable honor to carry the message at Christmas time that Jesus came, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, that Jesus left, and that Jesus is coming back. That, my friends, is the hope of the world, and we need to tip the scales because it always seems like the weight of darkness is on this side. I'm going to tell you something. The weight of hope is heavier than the weight of darkness. Years ago, I was a youth pastor to middle school kids. You have to have a certain calling on your life to want to work with middle school kids. I love middle school kids. They are amazing. They're so unbelievably honest, right? You know, you ask, you ask a group of adults, you know, do you like what we're doing? And they'll give you these very politically correct answers. Middle school kids, you just say, do you like what we're doing? They're like, no. It's like, okay, then let's change it. We're going to go in a different direction. But years ago, I'm a middle school pastor, Emmanuel Evangelical Free Church in Steinbach, Manitoba, and my friend Myron, for Christmas, buys me a t-shirt, and on the t-shirt, it says in little tiny words, pastor to monsters. <laughs> you know what I can tell you? Those monsters can become saints. There was an awkward middle school kid named Gary. Gary's a Wycliffe Bible translator. There was a goofy kid named Jared who walked around with his lips moving all of the time. People thought he was nuts because he was always talking to himself. Actually, he was always praying. Jared became a camp director in a camp that saved thousands of kids. I could give you list after list after list of little monsters who are now pastors and missionaries and parents and businessmen and women, and they are a light that multiplies over and over and over again. I want to remind our church, our students are not the church of tomorrow, they're the church of today. And it's kids like Simon that give me intense hope to know that they're still a generation, even though they may be young, that carries a single message in their heart, and that's the message that Jesus, the light of the world, still saves. So if you needed hope in the story of a family who wanted to give gift cards because they got them, if you needed hope because you wondered whether or not your atrocities could be covered by the same grace that covers all other sin, if you needed hope because you needed to be reminded that people still come to Jesus and are still baptized and are still transformed, then my prayer is today you will walk out of here saying, I serve the God of hope. That's what makes Christmas so beautiful to me. Would you pray with me as we close today? Father God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for covering us with your grace and your mercy. Thank you for bringing hope into a dark world through the name of Jesus. So Lord, today, may, may the, tip, the scales be tipped. May the weight of hope push back the darkness. And may we see our role in taking that mission forward in the weeks to come. God, thank you for, for worship. Thank you for Simon. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. Thank you for Laura. Thank you for Bobby. God, thank you for all the kids that I had the privilege of loving back in Manitoba. God, may all of it together shout to the heavens.
We believe in the God of hope. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.